Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Now, Paul once sang, your mojo will have no effect as we head into tomorrow. Well, clearly he hadn't read Mojo's Collector's Series from my special guest this week, Pat Gilbert. Journalist, author, broadcaster, and a man who has Paul Weller on speed dial. Pat shares a love of the jam, stories of many meetings with Paul, and exclusive interviews. Plus a sneak preview on 2021's upcoming new album, Fat Pop Volume 1. So let's get into it. Hi, Pat. Hey, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. This is a joy. So I'm really excited about this one because you've kind of featured Weller and written about Weller so many times over the years. So I'm hoping you're a fan. (laughs) I'm a big fan. Absolutely massive fan. I think out of all the musicians who've had a kind of influence on me, on on my musical tastes and also me as a person, I think Paul would be the biggest one. The Jam and The Clash, I think, were the the ones that set me on my way. Focusing on Paul, so when when did you first discover the music of Weller then? I'm guessing The Jam from what you just said. The Jam, yeah. My sister was two years older than me and she, um, there was a boy in her her year at school who lived around the corner from us and he had um, Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols and um and the jam's first album so i used to go around there um i guess it would have been um towards the end of 1977 so i would have been 11 i guess coming up for 12 yeah and that's when i first heard the jam i first i heard the the, the first album I tell you what i've been listening to shawadi wadi up until that point so i found it quite uh it was something about weller's voice that was kind of so much about the kind of suburban streets that I'd grown up on, I think. And the and the jam, unlike the kind of the clash and the pistols, they they kind of sounded like they they'd just come out of the youth club. You know, they'd been rehearsing in the youth club around you know the back of the church hall, and they they and they, and they were kind of escape, escaping from something. They're, they're so there's all this sort of 
anger and, and aggression and longing in, in it. And I, I wouldn't have been able to uh, uh, kind of intellectualise it like that at that point. But um, I think there was something about it. But it wasn't until a bit later on where I really, I kind of really got into them. And that was, I remember hearing the, uh, the chart countdown on a Sunday evening and, and uh, on the radio in, in the kitchen at home and um, down in the tube station at midnight came on. And I just thought, wow, I don't know. Because it's a very unusual song, the structure, and, and, um, and, and it is kind of like a poem put to music, but it's got all those kind of thrashy, crashy jam elements as well. And um, then I got all, all my cons and that was it. I was, I was into this this world of discovery, which was, um, which I still, I still am in it. Love it. Love it. So many people on this podcast have talked about the energy and it's still, when you hear it on the radio now, it still kind of leaps out of the, the sound waves at you. Yeah. It? Yeah. It kind of absolutely. attacks you, I think that, that song. Yeah. There was a lot of attack in the jam and the, in the, in the guitars and in that, in the vocal delivery, there's a lot of craft, there's a lot of craft, a craft, I'm trying to say in the, um, in the records themselves, if, if you listen to them, it was um, Vic Coppersmith Heaven who who produced those those jam records was very clever at channeling all that energy that they had live into a record that was very polished. And I think you get that on on Eaton Rifles and you get it on Going Underground. That that the kind of the compression on those guitars is just amazing. There's there's, there's just so much vitality about the whole thing and it's great and I think when you were a kid when you were 13 or 14 it's just what you kind of wanted really sort of trying to it was expressing something that perhaps you couldn't express yourself I probably still can't you know (laughs) well you say that I mean you you spend your life expressing yourself about music so as an 11 year old kid discovering the jam when was it then that you kind of decided actually I want a career in music and writing about music and, and all that because of the jam and the clash I started buying the enemy when I was about 13 or 14 because I used to have a paper round so I just Used to, I used to sit there reading it. Well, I should have been uh, on the top floor of the shop. Well, I should have been uh, doing other things. And um, I, uh, and it was kind of, it was. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the language in it. And there was, there was sort of, um, you know, Charles Sean Murray and people like Paul Morley writing at that time. And I hadn't got a clue what they were on about, really. But I did. The the uh, that's when I thought, wow, that's what I want to be. I want to be kind of hanging about with these bands and trying to sort of make sense of them. But I was also sort of play. I started playing in a, in a in sort of punk inspired groups at a very tender age. So um, the, yeah, the jam. I kind of imagined one day sitting and writing about the jam, and and it, it took a long while to happen, but it did eventually. Did you get to see the jam live? Or was yes, I did. Yeah. I was right. very lucky. I saw them on the 24th of May, 1979, at Portsmouth Guildhall. And um, it was a day before Paul Weller's 21st birthday. And uh, the crowd was singing Happy Birthday to You. It was the last night of the tour as well. And I mean, I was God, how, how would I, I would have been 13. And I mean, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying because it still had that sort of punk gig type atmosphere about it and they and they and there was just like this sort of incredible tension in the air and this sort of big you know lots of geezers all it was slightly the mod thing hadn't quite happened at that point saw them later in the year in bryson and and that it had by then because quadrophenia had come out the Guildhall gig, oh my god it was so loud and um i can't remember what they started off with i always remember they they finished off with heat wave maybe and there were some pyrotechnics at the end of A-bomb in Water Street. 
<laughs> and it was the most, oh, my senses I don't think they've ever been so overloaded in my whole life. They were just, it was just such an incredible experience. And I mean, Umwela looked brilliant at that point. Well, still does, I guess. Came on, sucking on a fag, flipped it into the audience, bash, off they went. It was just, oh my God, it was just, it was just fantastic. You say that. I've, I've, I mean, I've been to obviously over the past thirty years. I've been to. I mean, Lord knows how many gigs I've been to with with Paul. And I mean, thirty plus. I would say at least every year. And um, the there are times still now where you're kind of a bit terrified in that mosh pit. And there's there's those geezers you talk about are there still. And it's like yes. wow. I mean, I remember going to Brixton and Brixton Academy a few years back, and it was a um, it was a pre Christmas charity gig various people on the lineup i think like liam gallagher might have been on maybe the charlatans and that was a night you could tell it was going to be like an aggro kind of night and it still yeah. felt like it had that kind of punk vibe and that until yeah, sometimes you're like wow i'm not sure i mean the front row here i'm not sure i'm up for this go by me no i know but it, it, it made it kind of did make it more exciting it wasn't quite as as, as as terrifying as when i saw the specials that was that was that was all kicking off that night and <laughs> yeah. um but yeah it, it was um it's this whole thing that he represents. He, I, I think, well, as like an outsider. I think people always saw him as a bit of an establishment figure in a funny sort of way and talks about the jam being very conservative. But I didn't really ever get that. I always thought he was such an outsider. The press, who were much older than he was, because he was so young when he started, were very sniffy about him. Even though it's very hard to believe this, were right up until the mid 90s I think or even the late 90s and I was doing when I was putting together the, the Mojo specials it was difficult to find in queue even substantial interviews with Weller before about 1995 and it, and queue had been going nine years by that point I mean they they barely touched the style council at all um so so he was this um he was always this sort of soul boy working class soul boy outsider with this bristling against the kind of the, the mainstream media and and the mainstream as well, you know. So uh, it's kind of really interesting that how much of a kind of angry he had every right to be angry. I think because I think he people didn't get it, but I think kids younger than him just really looked up to him. I mean, he was he was one of my teachers. I think in a funny kind of way, you know, I was educated via the records of the, uh, the Clash and the Jam. You talked about the um, these kind of collector series, which are. I mean, they're works of art, not just for Paul Weller, actually, but, you know, the, all of them you've, you've kind of been doing from, you know, um, Bowie, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff, the Beatles. It's just, I mean, incredible. The one that I kind of wanted to focus on particularly was the the kind of solo years and this kind of time from 91 to 2019. You get the impression at, at times when Paul doesn't really like you journalists. <laughs> and, nice. But you, <laughs> and I don't, have you ever had that yourself or have you just kind of maybe heard stories of others? It feels like sometimes there's been a kind of love-hate relationship um yeah i've been on the yeah i've been on the other end of the boot um i can't try to try to think when i mean the first time i ever interviewed him was in 19 was it 1991 uh when extras came out it was the jam thing and it did it, and it was immediately before his first solo album or not long before his first solo album. And we met him in Nomis Studios. Um, I was working for Record Collector magazine at the time. And we met him in Nomis Studios in Shepherd's Bush. And I just all I remember thinking is how silky his hair was. He was like, he, I'd never seen a man with such well-tended hair. And he was, he was very angular. And he was really just reticent and kind of grumpy and spiky. 
you know, and I remember saying to him, this is a stupid question, but I was, you know, I was nervous. We talked about the, the Beatles and I was saying, who was your favourite Beatle? Because obviously, you know, you call yourself Paul because I think his real name's John, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, I don't know. Who cares about that sort of shit? And I'm like, okay, right. <laughs> and, um, and then I think one of the other time I said, oh, you, he said to me, you're, you're the most miserable journalist I've ever met. I'm like, all right, thanks, Paul. And um, yeah, he can. He's very. I mean, he. A lot of people, when you interview them, the thing about Paul is he takes everything. He takes your questions very seriously. He he he, he takes what you're asking him very seriously, and he's and he's very 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 um, proud and protective. I think about what he does, and quite rightly so. But generally, we've we've got on pretty well. I think, yeah. I mean, I kind of... Do you remember that? Um, uh, it's on... It's on it was Swedish television or something like that, Danish television, in the jam, at the, towards the end of the jam, and he gets interviewed by yes. this woman. Yeah. He's just crucified. Yeah. He's yeah, just absolutely, crucified. Absolutely about, destroys her, doesn't he? Dicking yeah. in a basket and scampion yeah. chips and all this, like... And, um, which is done in a very playful way, actually, when you look at it. But he's, yeah, I don't, I, I think he's rightly spent a long time of his career being written off by people. And he's, and he's been vindicated. You know, what his standing as an artist is, it, it, as, a, as a kind of British solo artist, or however you want to describe him, um, it's just sort of second to none, really. The, the quality, the amount of quality work he's done. And people are kind of rethinking what the Style Council meant you know, now, which is great because I love the Star Council. So, yeah, but, yeah, he can be a bit spiky sometimes. <laughs> you talk about being written off. The Collector's um, Edition that I'm talking about starts off with that first solo album. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of the, the end of the Star Council, those periods where he's kind of um, not even gigging, he's kind of um, looking after the kids at home, not knowing what to do next. And there's that kind of interview there with the, about that first album that was kind of funded by um, a record company in Japan because they kind of still loved Paul and still kind of worshipped him. And, and it's in there about how they don't really know how to produce their own music in Japan, so they paid in an absolute fortune. But that first album, I mean, I love it. I absolutely love that first album. But reading about that, when he's kind of got no record deal, no idea where to go next, is fascinating. So when you're revisiting that kind of 20 years on as you produce this publication, that must be so interesting to kind of look back on somebody now who is so confident about what, they, what he's doing, so experimental. But back then he was kind of, feels like almost like a nervous wreck of what he was doing. No, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because I think that's at the end of the Style Council had been so such a kind of difficult period. Um, and the music... You know, you, you could pretend that it's great, but I mean, it's not. It's kind of very patchy towards the end. He's kind of he's feeling for uh, lots of the elements of that actually came out in a more fully formed way in in the past few years. But yeah, I think he was really. I mean, don't forget he was like thirty three at that point, which is the Jesus age, of course, where you know you, where uh, you get crucified for your for your beliefs. And I think he certainly. He certainly had been. And, and we take it for granted now that people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and beyond can make music, um, which is credible. At that point, that wasn't the case. That punk thing lingered. And the idea that you would make, you know, it's like, what would you write about in your 30s? What, going to Sainsbury's and doing the shopping or, you know, or, or your kids, you know, it's, it was. And Weller was the, one of the first people, I think, who, because who, he'd still look really good and because he... He's, he was still growing as a musician. He was the start of that whole era of, of, of adult people making really 
cool kind of music. And he's, he's, he just grows as a musician all the time. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I, was, I always think back to um, the, um, the Second Jam album, uh, This Is a Modern World, and the, the musical progression from that, from the first album, even though it's, it's you know, six or seven months later, is extraordinary. And all the time, he's, he's, he's just learning more and more about pseudo techniques, about writing, about about everything. And I don't think that's finished yet. I think mm-hmm. On Sunset and Fat Pop are going to just be, he's just going to keep keep experimenting. Now I'm excited about talking about Fat Pop. We'll 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 leap on leap onto that in a sec. But um, yeah. I kind of wanted to ask you a couple of questions around um, the period, I guess, from that first album to to, to now. The magazine kind of takes you through the the period of Wildwood, Stanley Road, Heavy Soul. These kind of huge smash hit records that have massive sales, and it kind of puts him back on top again. How did you feel when you're kind of reviewing that work and stuff? How do you feel kind of looking back on that time because that was the kind of height of Britpop? And when you kind of read back, there's, I mean, that feels like a massive, massive comeback for him. Him. Yeah, but it was such a great time, and he was he was part of it. We talk about Britpop, and we talk about Oasis, and we talk about Blur. There were there was other things happening, like Weller's Renaissance and the Charlatans sort of growing as a band, and all that. All those people who had been influenced by the sixties were, were coming back, and like oh my god, it was it was like the sun was shining every day. I always thought, and every new record that everyone was putting out was brilliant, and everyone looked really cool. They got rid of all that horrible grunge stuff with people with ripped jeans and goatee beards, and you know, it <laughs> yeah. was people looking really sharp and angular and moddy. And uh, yeah, I said, yeah, I think it was great. I mean, well, it looks great, it sounds great. There's still has a sort of uh, energy and ambition. It was great. Now, as we go through, um, it, obviously, Paul kicks off the new millennium with Heliocentric. You then take us through Days of Speed, which was this kind of acoustic tour um, and, and tour and album, um, and then into Twenty Two Dreams, which is where we'll pick up. So this extraordinary kind of double L. And I think I'm right in saying you had like three sessions with Paul for this article where um, I love this phrase. I'm going to read it to you word for word. So you kind of dig into the complicated, uncommonly creative psyche of rock's most confounding 50 year old, <laughs> which I just think is beautiful. So this came off the back of As Is Now. And Paul, in, in your article, talks about the fact that As Is Now, for him, felt like it was his final record, which is like, if you think about that now, if that was the end point, you're like, wow, we'd have everything since we'd have missed out on Christ. But he says about the fact he wasn't bothered if he ever made another record after that this period of kind of disillusion after that point i mean you're you're uncovering these kind of gems from him in these articles can you remember because it's kind of like what is that 12 years ago now 22 years yeah it was i at the time i knew it was a really good album but i didn't realize how important it was going to be uh historically he was um and i was surprised about what he said about his previous album because i'd i'd kind of quite i quite enjoyed that i think somewhere along the line he'd discovered electronica and somewhere along the line i think he decided that he wasn't going to have any musical boundaries and he was going to another that if he was going to make this record it didn't matter if his fans didn't like it i think those come along every every now and again i mean there's the the quality of songwriting on that album is amazing it was a crazy time because i think that was the end of his time where after the vindication of of his solo years and uh, becoming massive again with Stanley Rose. He'd lived the kind of, um, I don't want to say rock and roll lifestyle, because it wasn't a rock and roll lifestyle, but I think he'd sort of enjoyed boozing and travelling and and uh, and that kind of stuff more than he'd ever done. And that, and that was towards the end of that thing. So we did, we had three sessions, and I think, I mean, we were just pissed the whole time. <laughs> I can't even remember. I remember one was in an Italian restaurant. One was at the Black Barn. Yeah. Then where did, how did that end up? 
I don't think it ended up badly, but it was ended up, yeah, I think we were, you know, we were drinking and and everything, and Lord knows where the other one was. I think, <laughs> oh, he was up in, um, yeah, he was um, support, he was doing a support slot with the Rifles, I think, at um, Town and Country Club. Right. And, um, and, and he was, you know, he was good. I don't think he realised how important that record was going to be either. So... But it was really good fun. I mean, I mean, I think people get it now, but he's such a funny, he's such a hilarious bloke to hang out with when he's in a good mood. He's just such, he's got such a, a kind of great kind of wicked sense of humour. It's like, you know, he's a real, he's really good, good fun. And he's always interested in you as well, which very, very few artists are actually interested in in what's happening with you. And it's a, it's a kind of quite a comp you know it's, it's a huge compliment really mm. like that at that time you got to go to dubai as well i did get to go to dubai yeah it was for q magazine and i think they were trying to the, the dubai tourist office was trying to open up dubai at that point as a kind of western weekend holiday destination kind of thing quite successfully i suppose uh yeah so there was a, so that i think they paid some artists quite a lot of money to appear at a, a festival and it's just like in the you know it was like in a car park sort of next to the desert um right on the outskirts of town by the airport because it was so surreal i mean did dubai that that point was so surreal because obviously you can't drink but you can drink if you're a westerner you can still drink in hotels and you can there were still licensed things so it's just full of expats who just drank the the, the whole thing dry by about half past nine and Weller and his band weren't allowed to drink on stage so they had vodka and and lemonade in their water bottles and they but they were just on fire that night it was it was when that uh, it was the beginning of that um touring band that he has now with uh Steve Pilgrim in it and Craddock and Crofts and and uh uh, oh no, it was Andy Lewis at that point was the bass player. Mm. But they were just he had these young guys and it, they were just giving it. Oh, it was just such a magical night. You know, they played it to the early hours and then uh, we all flew home together. So it was, yeah, it was, it was good fun. What a joy! What a joy! What, what's Paul watching yeah. on the aeroplane? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I say together. They, I think they they were on a different flight. They were on a posher right. flight. We were probably <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. And two, we two years later, Wake Up the Nation, um, an album that sees the return of Paul working with Bruce Foxton, his yeah. old partner. Um, I went to I went to all five nights in a row at the Royal Albert Hall for that tour, which was just incredible. And, and it was like you know, one night Kelly Jones came on, another night Bruce Foxton came on. I've never heard any noise like it. I thought they were booing, but it was. Bruce, like Bruce Springsteen, Bruce. <laughs> it's incredible. But um, but yeah. you also write about this kind of return to Woking. So they did this um, charity mm. gig, this kind of homecoming gig at Woking Leisure Centre randomly for a couple of local hospices. And Paul and Bruce back together on stage again, which is... I mean, for me, that was just, I mean, I never got to see the jam. Um, I kind of discovered Weller through the, the very first solo period. But for people who kind of grew up with the jam and loved the jam, seeing them back together on stage must have been such a, such, such a thrill. It was one of those moments that it was so thrilling and so kind of touching. It was surreal. I, I mean, I remember thinking and looking at them and just thinking, I, I, you know, I, you just never thought it would happen in a million years. And if you kind of squinted a bit, it just looked like the jam. It was kind of, you know, they were both, you know, looking pretty good. And um, I think maybe Steve Brooks even, a very early jam member, joined them on stage. I can't remember. But it was, yeah, it was just, it was just, it was surreal, but brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. 
Yeah, yeah, and they, he did. He joined them at the Royal Albert Hall as well, didn't he? Bruce? Yeah, he did one. Of, he did one of the yeah. nights on the. I think it was the Thursday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Royal Hall, yeah. yeah, which was just yeah. incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I, I loved that. Yeah, I was mosh pit every night of the week for that for that one. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I went back actually on the, at the end of the, the end of the gig um, on the Friday. I emailed the Royal Albert Hall and said, Look, "I've come every night. I'm coming 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 tonight on the final one." Outside, there's one of these massive um, poster sites, you know. And I was yeah. like, "I've seen this every night. Can I have it?" And they gave it to me. And ever since, I've had it in a car tube because I haven't got a wall big enough. <laughs> one day, one day that's going up on the wall. Yeah, one day when you get yeah, 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 I've yeah. mentioned it's a bigger wall. So uh, finally, let's touch on the kind of recent years. So the, the most for me, the kind of I guess the most adventurous stage of his career kind of continues. There was Sonic Kicks where he played the Roundhouse and kind of um, I don't know if it was Confidence or Arrogance, but kind of played played the album in full. So yeah. everybody else was kind of revisiting old albums and and yeah. um, and performing their kind of classics. Paul went, you know, my my new album's my classic, and literally did yeah. the whole album from start to finish with with some other stuff after that at the end of it. And then we've had you know Saturn's Pattern, True Meanings, Kind Revolution. How would you kind of sum up those years since I guess some Sonic kicks onwards, where it feels like there's so much experimentation in his music. He's pushing new yeah. boundaries continuously. Um, I I just think it's great, and I thought the Sonic Kicks thing when he played the whole album, I I really enjoyed it because I really. I really enjoyed that album. And you think, well, do you want to see him playing all the greatest hits again? I mean, if, if some people probably do if, the, if you don't see him that often. But that was that kind of, yeah, confidence or arrogance, as you say, to do that did reflect what's happened with his albums since. They've all been, um, they've all been different. Uh, this, what I find gobsmacking is just how much good stuff there is on there. You could do like a, a three-volume greatest hits of the best tracks from the, the last 10 years. I mean, it's just the, the quality is just amazing. Almost too much for fans to take in, I think. You know, they, you, you, if you're used to living with somebody's music and, and absorbing an album, for a new one to come around just around the <laughs> straight away, so it sometimes uh, can be a bit disorientating. But um, they some great songs. I mean, he, he could just play a, he could play a two-hour set of the best stuff from the last four albums but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. easy easy yeah. Yeah. You, talk, you talk about the um that disorientation i love that because that's so true it's kind of it feels like we're only just kind of really digging into on sunset and then suddenly there's a news he's recorded this album in lockdown it's coming out next may fat pop volume one which um i'd love to know more about because talk, talk me through how this is how you've been linked into this so you got a text from paul so paul's in your phone already right his mobile number yes yeah yeah i do get i get the occasional um text uh, you know mr gilbert i uh, call <laughs> or pg um so it's always a bit of a shock what have you got him um, in as just paul weller or the mod father or governor or what? well i think it's something like well it's i think it's paul w or something just in case my phone <laughs> yes into yeah, that, fair, you know, fair enemy hands or yeah. something. um but yeah no, i should have the mod father uh, no, because I'd, I'd heard, um, I'd been invited down to here um, on Sunset in full a year ago. And then uh, with this one, uh, yeah, I had a text with a sound file attached in, I think it was in August or early September. And it was one called Cosmic Friday. And um, and it was it was really great. And um, it was like, well, okay. And he said, oh, you've got to hear, we've, we've done the album. And I thought, I, I thought I'm, he must have mistyped it or something. 
Um, but he, I think they had all but the mixing completed the album by that point. So it must have been September. And um, so because of lockdown, there was a kind of invita- loose invitation to go down to hear it, but then couldn't. And um, so the, the news piece was kind of, there's a bit of smoke and mirrors there. It was, it was, uh, it was concocted by, from, from the Midsummer Music film documentary that they, they streamed. Um, they played three new tracks on that. So mm. I, kind of, I, I kind of had, they're, they're, they are off the album. So that gave me more of a, uh, a, an insight into what the whole thing might sound like. But it's just, you, you know, to have that kind of creativity in order to, because it's quite difficult writing songs. It's quite difficult writing songs that are different from the songs that you've, you've written before. And um, it looks like he, he's kind of, he's done it again. That hit rate is, I mean, just, yeah. um, I mean, just incredible. And you talk about, yeah. like, what's like 40 years since, um, well, no, over 40 years since In The City and just still churning out amazing stuff. And, and so how much have you chatted with Paul about the new album? Is there anything? You can- well, I just, just on the phone, just on the oh. phone for about half an hour. He's not, he's not always the greatest person at discussing his own music. He's very good at discussing other people's music. But, you know, I think he, he thinks that, um, you know, all you've got to do when you listen to it, that's, that's when it all makes sense. You know, you can, you, you know, talking about it isn't you know, particularly illuminating, but um, some of the, the lyrical content's always interesting that he's talking about stuff because he's, he, he's, he's never stopped being political really. And, and in, in recent years, sort of more overtly, he's gone back to that sort of style council thing, almost of sort of talking and uh, talking about the issues of the day or alluding to the issues of the day, like immigration. And he's still staunchly uh, anti-Tory, which is uh, funny when you consider, you know, in 1977, he was, you know, allegedly chucked off the white riot tour or whatever for being, yeah. a, you know, for voting and saying he's going to vote conservative. <laughs> yeah, <whatever>. yeah. <laughs> um, which, of course, I don't think he ever would. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to hear the whole thing in full. I mean, the, it's funny you should mention the, the Black Barn, you know, studio, because having, having the Black Barn studio, a lot of people, when they have their own studio, it can it can make their music, it can kind of dissipate it. And I think he's been very clever in the way he uses that studio because it means that he can make records and he can put ideas down very quickly because it's all there. He can use it whenever he wants to. But I don't get the impression he uses it to just noodle around in. It's it's a facility that kind of facilitates him getting ideas down across very quickly. So fingers crossed the album is going to be released, your article says, at the May next year, around his birthday, funny enough, because you, yes. you mentioned earlier on, um, almost like called a full circle for you. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it sounds incredible. Obviously, we've heard a couple of tracks, like you say, on the on the kind of live, or as live kind of concert and stuff. It feels like he, I mean, he never stops working. I can't wait to see him live again next year. So hopefully, you know, the tour dates and we'll get out of this kind of daft lockdown and, and move on with our lives to get back to live music. And I, and I feel that from him as well, that they kind of can't wait to get back on the road and kind of tour, I guess, two, two three albums almost that we've kind of not yeah, discovered. I know. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's what can, what can you, you know, what can you choose? It's like, must must be, yeah, it must be so difficult. So you'll be down the mosh pit, won't you? Yeah, oh, yeah. Still, still, just about, <laughs> just about clinging on, holding on to the barrier at the front. I'm terrified, yes. usually. A couple of final questions for you. So one being, um, you talked about musical discovery, and obviously um, so, mm. you know, so, so much of what you do is about um, us all discovering new music from you. And yes. um, and appreciate that so much, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm so sad personally. Every month I'm sad when the Q magazine doesn't pop through my letterbox still because that was just a beautiful thing. When Mojo comes through, um, it's a joy to kind of um, discover from, from front to back. Paul seems to always be recommending music as well. He's somebody who I, I've discovered so many bands from Declan 
O'Rourke and the Black Pumas and Young Fathers, all these kind of bands. It's so lovely to kind of have these recommendations from you guys. It, it just helps us to discover music in these times. Well, it does, but it's increasingly, it's increasingly hard to do it because I think um, from a personal point of view, I kind of get sent and are expected to listen to and review uh, albums of a certain kind, which brings me to something like, like I'd, I'd say a recommendation would be um, uh, Andy Crofts, who's, um, you know, well as a uh, bass player and, and kind of, uh, well, together with Craddock, his kind of right-hand man, I suppose, creatively. Um, it, it, the Moons, his band, have just done a fabulous new album, really just called Pocket Melodies. It's almost, I, I always knew that... Um, Crofty was a kind of um, very talented guy, but I mean, it's just, it, that's that's a really good one. But keeping up with that, that I mean, because Weller turns on to people like Le Super Homard, who are the French band. And he's, got an, he's got an amazing ear and he, and he also very much respects and wants to bring through young musicians, which so few older musicians do. Yeah, I, th- uh, I, I think you're right. It's, it's great to kind of see people like, um, you know, Lucy Rose, I discovered through him and, and saw her on yeah, top of yeah. stuff and absolutely adore her music. She's great. Final couple of questions. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council or Solo. Obviously, this will change all the time, but what would it be right now? You bastard. <laughs> As you finish, when you finish this recording, what would you go and ask Alexa to play? That's, that's, that's oh, not- I mean, uh, yeah. I'd, oh, God. That's, I mean, the one that really um, touched me, I think, is um, A Place I Love. Of uh, oh, my right. bonds. Yeah, we're, we're making a stand against the world. That was something as a young man that made my the hairs on the back of my neck sort of bristle. And uh, but I think it'd have to be a long one though. That was the thing. If a young had to have one, it'd have to. So it'd have to be tube station or in the crowd or or something something like that. Title track from the um, from the last album. I can't remember what it is. What's yeah, that's right. Yeah, track on the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and final question. So obviously the aim of this podcast is to end up at Black Barn with a, a day long interview with Paul Weller. Um, is there anything you think I should cover off? Any tips? Because you've obviously spent quite a lot of time with a man, even if it's just what we should text to each other afterwards. But what, is there any tips from you in terms of what we should cover? Well, I think um, I think you should be um, honest um, with him and honest um, about who you are as a person because he's, he's got that thing. He'll suss you out in a minute. So, you know, and... Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'd like to, I'd like to, I've always wanted to ask him a little bit more about his upbringing and I've always wanted to ask him a little bit more about how he kind of, he, he coped with, with, with fame, you know, in, in the early years. And people forget that he had, at one point he had Respond, he had his own record label and he was signing acts. And I think people... Uh, forget that he, you know, writes poetry or wrote poetry. There's, there's lots of different aspects of, of his creative thing that I'd, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to know more about, definitely. That thing you just touched on about the young age thing, I mean, kind of the, the jam and being a star, he was kind of, what, like 19... Uh, yeah. 19, 19, 20. That's, I mean, just, I mean, A, the work that was coming out, but B, the pressure on you for kind of, you know, to be this kind of spokesperson for a generation is who was kind of called at the time. It was kind of, I, I, I could barely, I could barely make my own tea, let alone anything else at that age. Well, I, know, I, I know. It's just, it's just such a, it was obviously that, but you can look at, you look at those pictures and you see there's this guy with so much going on in his head. There's, you know, just so much going on in his head. And I talked to, uh, I interviewed one of the Clash roadies uh, earlier 
this year, um, the baker. And we got to talking about the jam. And uh, he said, all I remember about Paul Weller is whenever you'd see him, he'd be biting his nails. And you can see, you've seen pictures of him with his sort of, you know, chewing his, his nails. And I think he was kind of, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of anxiousness, I guess, in those early years being thrust into this industry and kind of world. And, you know, and it's kind of... And I, I think he did well to survive it and did well to take the jam from the first album to number one of uh, Going Underground. It, it was sort of, he really managed to kind of progress um, into, to, uh, into somebody with potential, into somebody who was just as good as anyone else. Yeah, it would have been very easy to have kind of not, not followed through yeah. on that. And then... Yeah, he, he could have given it all up in 78 and, and yeah. gone and... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he'd have done. Probably just done the same thing. Just yeah. gone back to the pubs and played and become famous at another time. Yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Hey, Pat, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I can't recommend enough the collector's editions um, that you, you've kind of put together on Paul. For any fan, I have to say, it's um, it's not something you just kind of flick through once. You kind of literally devour it every kind of week. It's brilliant, honestly. So thank you. Um, and thank you for your work on, on introducing us to new music and everything. Uh, but most of all, thanks for this chat. It's been absolute an absolute joy. We've not even touched on the other artists that you've met and the other artists you've talked to and met up with p- people like Paul McCartney who's in his secret Hideaway in Long Island. They've not covered off yeah. the clash. We've not even covered off the stuff that you wrote for the jam box set. There's not been time, but it's been an absolute joy, Pat. So thank you so much. Dan, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, man. Brilliant stuff. Enjoyed that one so much. What a lovely man and what a bunch of brilliantly interesting tales as well. And even more excited about that new album now as well. Next week on the podcast, a real highlight for me. Get out your copy of 22 Dreams and look at that amazing picture. What a cover, right? Well, artist Tim Shepard joins me, well a fan, former Go Discs employee, and the creator of that wonderful piece of art that formed the cover of the album back in 2008. Something a bit different for our journey so far, but it's a real delight. Get it into your ears by subscribing now. And don't forget, leave us a review, give us a retweet and help us spread the word. You can also get in touch with suggestions of guests or your own fan stories. It's at WellerFanPod on Twitter or Paul WellerFanPod on Instagram. See you next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.